Legend has it that the author Ernest Hemingway wrote the first six-word memoir. He believed that he could in only six words tell the complexity of a person's story, to use just six words to capture grief and joy, pain and healing, confusion and discovery. Now building on that legend in our online, fast-paced, short-form writing world, many have used that own idea to try to capture their own stories, to, in only six words to tell their story of their history. And I believe when it comes to the Christian church, I believe that some of the most painful stories of people who have given up on God, people who have walked away from the church, I believe you can often capture their stories in just six words. A few anonymous examples. Here's one. Um, every head bowed, every eye closed. Which is a, a clear play on words, right, of what happens when you gather together and you pray. But you can't help but ask the question, what lies behind the pain? What went un unnoticed? What hurt? What questions? What doubting was, was unnoticed in the midst of gathering together with believers. Or another one, they spoke grace but showed hate. Right? What, what was it about that person's experience that they heard the message of Jesus and had conversations and read and studied the scriptures, yet when it came to their experience with those who claimed to be following Jesus, what they experienced seemed and sounded like and looked and felt nothing like what Jesus taught. Or the third um, this person said, die to self, fail, try harder. Right? What was it about their experience that in their pursuing and trying to follow Jesus, they felt like they failed and failed and failed, and they just found out in church that they were never good enough, that they never measured up. I asked a friend of mine recently about her story um, as I was working on some of these ideas. And the reason I asked her is because over the past couple of years, I've gotten to know her story. And by all of my ability and uh, of observation and understanding her story, there is no good reason why she should have anything to do with the church or religion at all. And so I asked her, I, and I said, all right, why are you still a Christian? Like knowing what I know about your story and knowing the depth of it and the pain, why do you still go to church? And so she shared with me, and I just want to read some of her story today. She, she said this, I walked out the double glass doors and I knew at my core I would never return. I said goodbye to my after-school job at the snack counter, goodbye to my church family, goodbye to my church building, goodbye to Jesus. I thought long and hard about it. I weighed the pros and cons, but at the end of the day, the damage was too deep. The anxiety attacks were too intense. At that point, it didn't matter what my heart wanted. My body physically would not let me step into that building anymore. So with fear in my heart of being alone, I stepped outside and I knew I would never turn around. The years to come would be full of police reports, hiding therapy arguments with Jesus and a lot of redemption healing, but on that day, all I felt was cold. Now getting to church in the first place was difficult for her because of the brokenness in her own family uh, tied with her family actually being kicked out of a church when she was a young child. Now somehow she ends up back in church as a teenager and described her experience saying this, I felt God's presence early on in that building and I wanted to feel it again and again. 
I remember my first day walking in and hearing the worship music. My heart broke open and I began to cry. I didn't know anything about Jesus. My family had already been deeply hurt by the church, but the moment I heard the music, I knew somewhere deep in my being that I had just found what I was missing. And at 14, year old, 14 years old, I fell to my knees and wept. And just as quickly as we can see and celebrate the work of God, the enemies at work as well. She continues, shortly after I started attending, one of the pastors picked me out from the crowd as a young, impressionable teen with an unstable home life, and then the abuse began. I looked up to him. He was the father I did not have at home, and I was under the impression that because he was a pastor, he knew everything and would not lead me wrong. So when my body began to protest, and I weighed the pros and cons and made my decision to walk out those double glass doors and never return. I was 17 and I fully and completely anticipated that I was also walking away from Jesus. It was a conscious decision. I chose to walk away. I think there's something in a story like that that deeply connects to our heart because we know people like that. Many of you know somebody who's been hurt. Maybe it's abuse, maybe it's pain, maybe it's the words that were said in a community. And so maybe you hear that story and you hear the bit, bits and pieces of a friend of yours' story. Maybe you hear your own kid's story and they, they went to church, but what they experienced in the church was not the way it was supposed to be. Maybe that's your story. And you hear echoes in this story, your own pain and your own trauma. See, I think most of us would agree that when it comes to our relationships, we know people that are walking away from the church. And when they walk away from the church, for many of them, they also believe that they're actually walking away from Jesus. Now, there are a lot of things that could cause a person to say, I'm done with the church, I'm done trying. And it can be incredibly difficult for us as a part of the church to watch that happen. That we can watch somebody ask questions or experience somebody and, not, and we often might feel like, I don't know if I have the right answers, I know what to say or how to help them navigate these questions. Or if you are the person who's asking those questions, you might, in the context of your faith community, feel incredibly alone. Because you're asking questions that you feel like they're unsafe to ask. Like you can't actually be honest about with the people who are closest to you. Because what if they knew you were questioning that? Or maybe you just feel disappointed because you've tried to ask the questions. But the answers you get aren't satisfactory. I believe that this journey and these questions is a part of our faith. In fact, I believe that this kind of journey, a journey that deconstructs ideas and beliefs and values that we once held onto, is an important part of a Holy Spirit-led growing of our faith. Deconstruction may look like the loss of faith, when it might actually be the growth of it. 
Now, this word deconstruction is a newly popular word. And so if you are unfamiliar, the word deconstruction means dismantling traditional cultural norms, values, and ideologies. Now, this this word is actually a word that originates with French philosophy and, and academia and has been passed down through the academia over a number of years to the point where now it's at a wide cultural level. Now, the word being new, the, the actual process itself is not really a new idea. People have for a long time questioned their faith and ha- had things that led to the dismantling of their faith. But it's a newly popular idea. And this can happen with a whole bunch of things. Um, it can happen with political ideologies. People had a political ideology and then they deconstruct that. They pick it apart, dismantle it, and then they rebuild something else that looks a little bit different. Or they can deconstruct their religion that they grew up with. That they hit a point in their life, they go away to college, and the faith that their parents taught them is no longer what they believe. It deconstructs, it gets dismantled, um, and, then, and then it gets reconstructed into a different version of faith, or maybe even no faith at all. Um, or, uh, it, it, this can happen with institutions, with systems. Many of you may have done this in your own families, that you, when you decided to have kids of your own, you deconstructed your family of origin in order to, to say, all right, what are the things I want to pass on that my parents passed on to me, and then what are the things I don't want to pass on? That's a deconstruction of sorts. It dismantles it, looks at the pieces in order to decide what stays, what goes. A great and easy example of what deconstruction might look like in a healthy way throughout history would be the example of slavery. So slavery was a key part of conflict in American history around the time of the Civil War. Attached to that debate and attached to that was the legality of slavery. Slavery was written into laws. It was related to how we understood personhood. And alongside of that, there were some Christians who defended slavery. They used their poor interpretations of the Bible in order to determine that slavery should be legal. Other Christians, because of their understanding of the Bible, actually were at the forefront of of fighting against slavery. And so this debate took place in order to deconstruct the law in order to say, should slavery actually be legal? Now, what's important to understand about that, the deconstruction that happens in that case dismantles the long-held and the, the standing law, but it doesn't deconstruct right and wrong. Right? It deconstructs the law because of a view of right and wrong. It was actually faith in what was right that allowed people to dismantle the law and say the law needs to change. It was actually a faith in justice that allows somebody to say the law was, was at that time unjust and it should be changed. And so the law itself could be unjust um, and could be dismantled because of the view of justice. And so that deconstruction isn't a bad thing. It was, it was an important thing. In fact, it was good for our country. It was good for humanity. Now, the same thing can be true when it comes to talking about our faith. That there can be things in our faith that we, that, that we get to the point of we dismantle them. We pick them apart in order to ask challenging and hard questions. And I believe that when we do that and when that is led by Jesus, what it leads to on the other side of the dismantling is reconstructing something that is more faithful to Jesus. James K.A. Smith, who is a um, professor in Michigan, describes it this way. He says, deconstruction is a work of love. And deconstruction happens because it is animated by a vision for something different. Just as the law is deconstructed with a view to the advent of justice, so the church is deconstructed with a view to the advent of the kingdom. 
People don't deconstruct anything if they don't think it couldn't be better. If they don't believe that there is a better version, it doesn't get deconstructed in the first place. Deconstruction is a work of love for the benefit of other people. And so just as the legality of slavery could be deconstructed with a view of justice, so also we often need to deconstruct our religion with a view of Jesus or deconstruct the church with a view of the kingdom. And so this happens. This happens in the church. Now, along this journey, depending on where you sit in this, you might know somebody who is on this journey, or you might yourself be on this kind of journey. And so I think there are a couple of important questions to ask, depending on where you fit into this scenario. If you know somebody on the journey of deconstruction, I think it's important to ask, do I freak out about their journey, or do I walk alongside them? Now, this is important because if we are not on that journey ourselves, if we're not the ones asking the questions, the questions can feel really difficult. And we can seek control in order to have the answers to all of the questions. We can believe that this is evil and this automatically ends with people having no faith. Or we can choose to walk alongside of them, trusting and handing them over to Jesus, asking Jesus, please lead them along this journey. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the, this process is always has a good end. In fact, I would suggest our world has tried to latch on to this idea of deconstruction in order to celebrate and make it the ends. I believe the church needs to reclaim their voice in this conversation. Now, if you are on the journey of deconstruction, I think you also need to ask a very, very difficult question. In, in fact, you might even be offended by me suggesting you ask the question. The question I think you should ask is what needs to be deconstructed? Is it the way of Jesus, or is it the way you've been taught to follow Jesus? Because those are two dramatically different things. In fact, often when somebody is walking away from the church, the version of Jesus that they are walking away from looks nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. That when somebody walks away from the church and from Jesus because they experience abuse, that's not the God of the Bible that they're walking away from. They're walking away from something that looks nothing like Jesus. When somebody walks away from the church because they know someone who's been mistreated because of their particular sin, the way the church responded in one generation to divorce is in another generation sexuality. And so when a person walks away in response to the way another person was treated... Are they walking away from Jesus or are they walking away from their experience of people who claim to follow Jesus? See, the, the deconstruction led by the Holy Spirit will lead to a church that is more faithful to Jesus. That is better for humanity. In fact, sometimes the best thing we can do for our faith is dismantle some of the religion that has crept in. Now, here's the great thing. We're not the first to do this. 
And by saying we're not the first, I don't mean that, like, this is, that, that we're not the first because this is an idea and philosophy. In fact, we're not the first because this is just the journey of faith. People come to faith, people walk away from faith, and that faith gets rebuilt. This is a normal part of the journey of following Jesus. And so I want to look at Luke chapter 22. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke 22, we're going to spend time in just two verses, verses 31 and 32. And the reason I want to dig into this text, Jesus says a prayer for Simon Peter. And it's a prayer that I believe is incredibly powerful when you understand that these words could apply to Jesus' own prayer for you. To you and your faith experiences or to your kids and their faith experiences. Ultimately as what Jesus would pray for us. I'll begin reading verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now these two verses happen during what we understand as Holy Week and what we in fact describe as the Last Supper. And so Jesus is talking to Simon Peter, and he is doing this because it is a, at a turning point in his ministry. For the past three years, Jesus has been teaching the disciples, having conversations with the disciples. They've, they've experienced the Sermon on the Mount. They've experienced the feeding of the 5,000. They've experienced people being raised from the dead. They've experienced all of this. And Jesus, in this moment, at the culmination of all of it, he says, all right, now I'm pleading in prayer for you, Simon, because you are not ready for what you're about to experience. Jesus knows that Simon Peter is not prepared for the doubts That he's about to have. He's not prepared that his faith is about to be undone by what he's soon to experience. He's not prepared to reconstruct his faith after he soon discovers that what he thought a Messiah was is not actually what a Messiah was. And so it's in that context then that Jesus speaks to Simon Peter predicting his denial but also saying I've been pleading in prayer for you that your faith should not fail. Now the word here for fail is a Greek Greek word, a klepo. It's actually where we get the word eclipse. And so when we talk about eclipse, like a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, this is the language that Jesus is using in order to pray for Simon Peter. And so you could say it another way. Jesus saying, Simon, I've been pleading in prayer for you. I've been pleading in prayer for you so that when your faith is eclipsed, By what you're about to experience, I pray that your faith would come back stronger. So so let's do a little science lesson here to to better understand how an eclipse works. Now, eclipses work, right, with shadows and light. And so if we are talking about a lunar eclipse here, the way that this would work is this board would be our moon. This This would be the earth. And then the light here would be our, the light source would be the sun. And so in a lunar eclipse, the way that it works is that the sun shines and as, and as the earth passes in front of the sun, it actually casts a shadow onto the moon. And so, if, and so at, the, at the right time, you can, you can actually see this take place and you'll see a shadow on the moon. Um, actually, just, just a couple days ago now, there was actually a partial lunar eclipse that you were able to see alongside of that, that orange, orange moon. 
Now, another way that an eclipse happened would actually be a solar eclipse. Now, a solar eclipse kind of is the same idea. It still involves blocking the light and shadows and all of that. It just changes the position of everything. And so instead, um, of what, uh, instead of the shadow being cast onto the moon, what actually happens is the moon, which is relatively, which is, which is much, much smaller than the sun, the moon passes in front of the sun, and because of the perfect alignment, it actually then appears to block the sun. And so so that would be something more like, like this as, as we're looking at it. And so what would happen essentially is, is the, the moon passes in front and at times you, see, you can see the sun and then as it comes right in front, it, it seems to completely block it so that all that's left around it is just a faint ring that allows you to see that there is a light behind it. That's also the one that you shouldn't look at, um, which as a kid you always want to look at. Um, but, that, but so what happens in these is that the light shines, some object blocks the light. So you can't see the light or it casts a shadow. And so Jesus is using this language here, very intentionally saying to Peter that something's about to happen. That something is about to happen, Peter, that's going to cast a shadow onto everything you thought you knew about the kingdom of God. That he's saying, he's pointing to his death. That Jesus is about to get arrested and, and Peter doesn't have his mind ready for understanding that. A version of the kingdom of God that involves the arrest of the king and the death of the king was not in Peter's understanding of what the kingdom of God meant. And so as Peter would watch Jesus die, he would look and Jesus is praying saying, I know that something's going to block your view of the sun. He said, but Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that you would return stronger. And what's incredible is it's not only a prayer not knowing it's going to happen. Jesus says it's a prayer predicting that Peter comes back stronger on the other side. See, something at some point will cast a shadow onto what you believe. That you will experience something. Somebody will say something. You experience loss and somebody in the church comes alongside and says something that's really not helpful. Or somebody tries to teach you about the Bible and it has nothing to do with what the Bible actually says. Or you experience loss or trauma or abuse. You experience a tension of conversations around politics, sexuality, whatever it might be. You, you experience conversations and the difficulty of those. And it casts a shadow onto what you thought you knew about the church. Or you experience something that's really, really hard. And so you try to look at Jesus, the light of the world, and the light is blocked. Jesus says, when that happens, my prayer is that your faith would end up being a gift to strengthen the church. Now, there are so many things that somebody could list as their experience for what is blocking their view of the church. Politics, sexuality, gender, trauma, abuse, emotional, physical, spiritual, any of those, poor theology, um, the church's relationship with science, human rights, violence, I mean, you name it. Now, here's the really difficult thing. As us, as a part of the church, we don't get to decide whether or not what is casting a shadow is valid or invalid. That's not up to us. The point is something is casting a shadow on what they have come to believe about the church. Jesus himself 
would deconstruct the religious leaders often when he would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. I wonder what kind of things, if Jesus were teaching the way he did in the first century today, what things Jesus would deconstruct, saying, oh, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And now Jesus did this not to reinvent orthodoxy, not to, not to discard the Bible. In fact, Jesus did it because he had a better vision for what it meant for the kingdom of God to be at hand. And so here's where I want to encourage you. The things that have caused you to question what you believe. The things that have cast a shadow under the church. The, kings, the things that block your view of Jesus. Are not evidence that you don't believe anymore. In fact, it's evidence that you do. Because the only reason you can see a shadow is because there's a light. The only reason that you see a faint ring when there's a solar eclipse is because the light is still there. And while the light may be blocked, while the shadow may be cut because of deep, deep pain, it's also evidence that you still believe and see the light. Your deconstruction may be dismantling some long-held traditions, values, ideas. But it's also proof that you're holding on to something better. The struggle is a sign of faith, not the lack of it. And so when Peter abandons Jesus, because his faith is dismantled in the shadow of the cross, it was the power of the resurrection that rebuilt his faith stronger. That rebuilt his faith in a way that looked entirely different. The shadows that have been cast onto what you believe are significant. And there's deep pain and hurt and doubts there. But I believe what Jesus wants to rebuild and reconstruct by the power of his resurrection is even greater. On the journey of faith, we can describe the journey in three distinct stages. A.J. Sabwoda describes these in his book, After Doubt, and describes it as construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Now, in the journey of faith, these are all often an important part of our faith. The challenge is the first two are what our, most of our world focuses on. The church primarily focuses on construction of faith, the conversion, the experience of coming to faith and building the faith. The world is very focused on deconstruction. And in fact, it is very, like, this is why we hear over and over again deconversion stories. And so the problem is, while the church focuses on deconstruction and, and why while the world focuses on deconstruction, who is going to focus on reconstruction? Because the deconstruction doesn't matter if there's not the rebuilding of something else. And I believe there is even an ache and longing when you look at the deconstruction that happens in our world, even in the fights for justice. What you have in the deconstruction that happens in our world is there is a fighting for justice and it's a desire for the kingdom apart from the king. And so what if the church, instead of focusing solely on construction, and we must do that, it is still a part of the call. What if we said, well, we're willing to walk alongside people even as they are walking away from us. And what if we said, what if we trusted and helped people so that what they built coming out of deconstruction actually ended up being a gift to the church? 
that their questions, their challenges, what if we actually believed it led to a more faithful church that was more reflective of the person and work of Jesus? Now the challenge is in this, is this does not provide for us a map. And the way that we get to here is not the way we got to here, and it's not the way we got to there. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia says, you won't get to Narnia again by the same route. Now the place we are trying to get to, and if you're in the journey of deconstruction, I'll make my bias really clear, which maybe um, invalidates all everything I say about the process of deconstruction. But my goal is that you get to Jesus. But what we also need to understand as the body of Christ is the journey there is not always the same way we, got, we left. And it still ends with the person and work, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you're a parent and you are watching a child go through this, it can be incredibly, incredibly challenging because what happens is you help them construct it. And so when you watch the deconstruction, they're tearing down things that you actually had a hand in helping them build. But I want to speak this truth to you. Know that what they're deconstructing may be about the pieces, but you gave them the tools that they need for the rebuilding. That led by the Holy Spirit, they will rebuild something that is faithful to Jesus. I want to circle back to my friend's story that we shared earlier, because I think there's some significant truth in it for us. She wrote this, a couple weeks later, I was out for a walk late at night by myself, something I often did at that age and still now, and I started to cry. I don't remember what I was crying about. I do believe now, looking back, that I was depressed in high school, but all I remember is I was crying and then suddenly I felt him. I felt at peace. I felt love. I felt safe. I felt all those things I had the very first day I walked into that church and heard the worship music. I remember my tears changing from sadness to shock. I felt a presence around me. I experienced Jesus that night for the very first time on a dirt road outside a church building. I remember shock, and then the very first thing I told Jesus when, he when I discovered he existed outside a building, I told him I would never set foot back in a church. And all I felt was love and him saying, Okay, I discovered on my own that night that you can have conversations with God and not go back to church, to that church, but I did start talking to God. I slowly started listening to worship music. I started reading my Bible. I started talking to God with a lot of anger and confusion. The truth is I did walk away, but Jesus followed me. The reason that this story is so powerful to me is because when she walked through the double doors of this church, when she became a dear friend of mine, I had no idea what it was that was casting a shadow onto her faith. I had no idea the pain or the hurt that somebody like me caused in the name of Jesus. And I'd do anything to deconstruct any version of Christianity that looks like that. 
And I believe Jesus wants to dismantle any version of Christianity that gets in the way of somebody experiencing the peace and the joy, the hope, the forgiveness. So when something casts a shadow onto what you once believed, you may be tempted to walk away. And in fact, what you choose to walk away from may look nothing like Jesus. And when that happens, the God of the Bible is a God who follows you out. And so the way I want to end today is I want to end with an opportunity for anybody who's on this journey of deconstruction, just an opportunity for you to pray, which I realize if you're on that journey and skeptical of God or skeptical of pastors, like it's a very, it doesn't really make sense that we're going to end that way, but that's what we're going to do. Um, so if you are on a journey of deconstruction, what I want to, I want to give you a couple things. Um, as we pray, I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you do two things. I want to ask him to help you name the object. So I want, I want to ask, name the thing, whatever it is that is casting a shadow onto what you once believed. And so we'll invite the Holy Spirit to, to speak that to you, to bring that to your heart and to your mind as we pray. And maybe that's a specific person. Maybe it's a specific a specific experience. Maybe it's a big general idea or a theology. Maybe it's a, a phrase that you remember somebody said this. I don't know what it might be. And then we just want to invite the Holy Spirit to be with you where you are in the journey. And my encouragement to you would be to continue to do this throughout the week, to ask God to lead you on this journey, because I believe that God will lead you to truth and truth will set you free. Now, if you are not on a journey of deconstruction, if you feel like, all right, I know what I believe, I'm confident in what I believe, I want to ask you to intercede for those who are praying. To go before God, to pray for whoever comes to your mind that maybe is struggling with their faith, maybe walking away from the faith, maybe they haven't been at church in years. I don't know what it might be. I want you to then be praying for them as we use this time. Jesus we come before you knowing that there are so, so many things that often cast a shadow on what it is that we believe. That there is hurt, there is abuse, there is pain, there is poor teaching. And so Jesus, we ask that you help us in this journey of faith. That for many who are here, they've constructed a faith, maybe even in this, this church. And now... They're asking difficult questions, unsure if they believe it at all. Some of them feel lonely, like they can't share that. And Holy Spirit, we just pray in these moments that you would bring to mind what, whatever it is that is casting a shadow onto their faith. Would you remind them of what it is, a certain teaching, a belief, an idea, a person, experience, what it is, that makes it hard to believe. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind them that you are present with them. In the midst of this pain, in the midst of the hurt, and I pray that you would lead them and as they continue to pray, as they continue to seek, I pray that you would surround them with people and that you would speak truth to them, reminding them that you are with them. 
Jesus, we pray over all those who are asking the hard questions, all those who have been hurt, all those who are ready to leave and ready to give up. Jesus, we pray that you would rebuild a faith so that we're stronger, that you would reconstruct something so that our church, so that this church looks more like the kingdom, so that your kingdom here in Troy would be as it is in heaven. Jesus, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we also take this time just as a moment to confess. To confess our own sin, the ways we've fallen short. The ways we've failed to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind. The ways we have not loved or treated others well. So we ask that you would hear us now in these moments as we bring before you the sins that you bring to our heart and our mind. promise of Jesus for each and every one of us. Whether you feel like you're on a journey and building your faith for the first time, whether you feel like you are dismantling it all, or whether you are rebuilding it, the promise of Jesus is that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.